0: Well, if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open it with me to the book of Psalms. And we will be on page 439 in the Black Pew Bibles. Page 439, we'll look at Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. If you're not used to using a Bible, uh, not only will hopefully the page numbers help as a reference, but Those chapter numbers are those large bold print numbers. And then I'll refer to the smaller numbers along the side columns, those are verse numbers. And throughout the life of our church, we would love for you to realize that we want to hear from God and we want to rightly hear what God has said to us in his word. So you'll be helped to open up your Bible and know that my words are none other than me teaching and explaining what God has said. And so there's a, a rule about reading the Bible. It's actually the same three rules that you hear of by real estate agents. Do you know them? What are the three guiding principles for real estate? Location, location, and location. You could say the same thing about the Bible, or to put it another way, context, context, context. Do you want to rightly hear this sermon? Then you need to understand its context. Do you want to rightly read Psalm 42 or any other portion of the Bible? Then know, as Tom Carson, Don Carson's father, has famously said, a text without a context will become a pretext for a proof text. In other words, you can do all things by taking the Bible out of context. And people do this all the time. We don't want to do that this morning. We would love to study the Psalms in their context, and therefore I am going to spend two weeks on both Psalm 42 and 43, and so we will talk about a song about depression, week one, in its context, so that next week, Lord willing, you will be helped by the practical tools that can be learned from Psalm 42 and 43 regarding depression. Some of you may really like part one more than part two, and some of you will really like part two more than you like part one. My hope is just like Psalm 42 and 43, you should see them as one. And that everything I have to say will be the undergirding foundation for all that we will look at next week. So, big idea before we jump into not only the practical things next week, but before I even read the text, let me make the argument that Psalm 42 and 43 collectively together offer hope. They offer hope that no matter how far away God may be or how you may feel him to be, he will not abandon his king or the people in his kingdom. That's the big idea, as I understand, what is the point for why these two psalms, collectively as one psalm, are in your Bible? What's the context? It is that they are to offer hope for all of God's people that no matter how far away you may feel that God is, even if you're the king himself, the chosen one, even when you're that person in the kingdom of God, he will not abandon you. That's the context for Psalm 42 and 43, in the book of Psalms, in the Old Testament, in the story of the Bible. And without knowing that truth, I think all of the helpful, practical, pastoral words I have to say next week will mean nothing. It will be a foundation on sand that can be easily washed away. It'll just be tips for living instead of deeply rooted truths that when the storms and waves, as our psalm is about to tell us, are breaking over your head and you feel like God has forgotten you, you will have something solid like a rock to stand your feet upon. That's Psalm 42 and 43. It is about hope, no matter how far away God may feel or actually be. He will not abandon his king, and therefore he will not abandon his kingdom and all who are citizens within it. Let's read the psalm first, making sure we go from the beginning of 42 to the end of 43. Follow along with me in your Bibles. To the choirmaster, a maskil of the sons of Korah, verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God." to God, my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Well, that, my friends, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, I pray that he would write its truth on our hearts as we unpack that big idea that I just proposed. Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 exist in its context to offer hope. Let's just stop stop there with that sentence and consider that. First, Psalm 42 and 43 collectively together are meant to be read together and together they offer more hope than if you read them apart. Is it obvious that they should be together? And is it obvious to you that the repeating refrain that's repeated three times in the collective two psalms is hope? Well, you should have heard it when I was reading. Verse 5, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Same exact words in the same exact order in the original Hebrew and in your English Bibles in verse 11. And in verse 5 of chapter 43. So that's one clue that maybe we should read them together when you've got that many words repeating themselves right next to each other in these two psalms. Clue number two that they are together and that they're to offer hope is that to the choir master maskil of the sons of Korah is the heading above Psalm 42. What's the heading above Psalm 43? Look down at your Bibles. As I said, you'd be helped. I'm not making this stuff up. It's right there. There isn't one. Why is there not a heading before Psalm 43? Because, as many people have suggested, there are actually just one psalm. But if you look at Psalm 44, and then Psalm 45, and then Psalm 46, and then Psalm 47, and then Psalm 48, and then Psalm 49, what are you going to notice? They all have headings. And they all have headings from the sons of Korah. Hmm. Argument number two, I believe, is very strong. That 42 and 43 are both meant to be read together. And that they're a part of an entire unit of thought that's centered around hope in God. Third and final argument. There's more we could do, but I hope you get the point. Notice the exact same phrase is repeated in stanza two and then in stanza three. So, here's the stanzas. Stanza one, verses one through five, is about the longing that the psalmist has for God in worship. He feels far away from God, and he wants to be near God in worship, and then he concludes, hope in God. Then stanza two begins in verse six, and notice here he talks about the geographical distance and the overwhelming waters. It's, it's a funny contrast. Stanza one, I want water and I am thirsty like a deer that is dehydrated. Stanza two is the exact opposite picture of water. There is too much water. I am feeling like I am drowning and I am about to die. And he explains in verse 10. The deadly wounds in my bones, my adversaries are taunting me. They say to me all the day long, where is your God? There's an occasion for this psalm, and part of it is taunting from enemies. And he says in verse 9, Why am I mourning because of this oppression from my enemies? Now notice the way that phrase, Why am I mourning because of the oppression of my enemies, is exactly repeated in verse 2 of Psalm 43. Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? You're the God in whom I take refuge, but it feels as if, it seems like you have rejected me. Do you, do you see the three arguments here? The repeated refrain of hope in God in these two Psalms, the lack of a heading in Psalm 43, and then this exact word for word repetition about the enemies that are oppressing is leading me to wonder God, do you even know who I am? Where have you gone? But when you read these together, I said, you will find more hope in them together than if they were apart. Because the end of verse 11 of Psalm 42 just seems to communicate hope in God, but you have no idea whether or not God's going to bring about that hope. It's it's like it ends and it's a cliffhanger and you're waiting for the next episode to come out and you're wondering, is God going to deliver? Is God going to show up? But when you read Psalm 43, notice he prays for vindication. He prays in verse 3 for his light and truth to lead him to the holy hill. And then the all-important verse 4. Then, when God vindicates me, when God sets me innocent and right... I will then go to the altar of God. To God, my exceeding joy, I will praise you with the lyre. The psalm begins in stanza one with, I just so badly want to be near the presence of God. I'm thirsty. Super thirsty like a deer in the middle of the desert. I know a lot of you aren't deer. And I know a lot of you probably don't know what it's like to be around places where there is no water anywhere around you but remember the context of the ancient near east and the context of the middle east and this was a common experience different seasons different geographical locations and we know his geography is north of jerusalem by a good 200 kilometers or that was one of the books i read i don't know why i didn't give you miles but miles would be 125 miles away Geographically, he's far away from the lush, green lands filled with water. And he says that he feels like a deer panting, longing to be with God. It would be like you and me in the middle of winter, getting the winter blues, depressed, struggling. Is the sunshine ever going to come again? Please, springtime, come! You ever notice in February or March, no one's outside, and then all of a sudden, the first warm day of spring hits, and it's like, everybody's out! It's like that darkness in this psalm. And there's a longing for the light. There's a longing for hope. And when you read these two psalms together, they offer hope because, verse 4, he says confidently, I will hear God's answer, I will experience God's vindication, and I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you, God. And that's why in the refrain, notice that there is the present tense of his downcast feeling. It means to be made low. The mix of all these metaphors is something we'll talk about more next week. But for now, just realize that he's saying he's down and he's low but then he feels far and distant. He, he feels thirsty, hungering, and longing to be in God's presence. But in each of the refrains, there is, For I shall again praise him. Hope in God, because I have hope that I will praise God with his people again. And I think that you see that more clearly when you read them together than apart. So let's pause and remember That our big idea is that Psalm 42 and 43 offer together hope for the very thing that the psalmist is so desperately longing for. And when we talk about depression, now, today, all this week, especially as we think about next week's very practical pastoral sermon, let me apply this basic idea The primary cure for depression, especially spiritual depression, is hope. Depression is when hope is deferred. This is one of the ways the Proverbs talk about it. The lack of hope is the very reason why the psalmist is downcast. I think that's true very specifically for this psalm. I think as a pastor, and I think for you all, if you make observations of dealing with people, they are depressed when they don't have hope, they're looking into the future, they're looking around them, and they're like, I've got no reason to live. That's the ultimate hopelessness. Then there's just the feeling of like, I just don't care anymore because why does it even matter? The absence of hope is what makes the heart sick. So, foundational fundamental truth is that this psalm is not only describing depression, but it is telling us that our ultimate prescription and cure will be hope, not wishful thinking hope, confident expectation. Like the psalmist says in 43.4, I will again get the thing that I'm so desperately longing for and feel is missing. And as we see in our big idea that this hope is not just any hope. It's a hope in God. Hope in God. Psalm 42 and 43 together offer hope, but not just random hope. They offer hope in God no matter how far away he may feel or be in your life. I mentioned a few of these ideas regarding the geography of the psalmists. Do you see it in verse 2? My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, and then notice, when shall I come and appear before God in his presence? That's the the bullseye of our psalm. It's about distance and proximity to God himself, and this is repeated from beginning to end of the psalm. I mentioned as well that in verse 4, he's looking back and remembering as he's pouring out his soul about how in the past he would go and be with the people of God in the house of God. Do you see that phrase, house of God? That's just another way of saying what he already said in verse 2. Appearing before God in God's house with glad shouts and songs of praise, having festivals with his people. So most of you know I was gone for three months for a sabbatical, and I just want you to know that like being away from the people that I've come to love over these last nine years, has made my heart yearn and long to be back together with you today. Hopefully you've had that experience, whether it's being in this church or just being away from church, being away from God's people, and that distance of regular communion with the people of God, around the Word of God, it starts to make your heart long for the things of God and the people of God. And I would hope and pray that for many of us, we would connect the dots between the psalmist's longing and our own. In fact, perhaps maybe a good diagnostic in your own soul is, is that even what your hope and your longing is? This is, again, the bullseye of what our heart was made for. You were made for God. You were made to be in his presence and be in all of his beauty. And so to have time away or distance from God, it makes us sick. It makes us quickly get satisfied with lesser things and then our hearts get sad when those lesser things don't deliver. But God, he is our refuge even when he seems far away. Verse 2 for you are, verse two of 43, for you are the God in whom I take refuge why have you rejected me? He knows theologically that God is the one he should take refuge in, but it feels like he's been rejected, and he's longing for God's face. Did you see in verse 5 of chapter 42 of the Psalms that there's a little footnote in the black Bibles around you? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And the footnote reads this, in the original hebrew the addition includes salvation of my face i think that the translators did a poor job of cutting that out it's really helpful to know that what he's saying three times in a row is hope in god he's talking to himself hey i know you're discouraged but put your hope in god for you will praise him again my god whose salvation and help comes from his presence. That's a wordier way to explain the original Hebrew phrase. Hope in God, for I will again praise him as I will be saved and I will be helped by God's presence. It's God himself that he needs. And that's none other than what you and I need. So add these two ideas together. When you're talking about depression, Hope deferred will make the heart sick. Ultimately, you are depressed if you get depressed individually or you're trying to help your friend, you need to give them hope. That should be your number one objective for your own self and for others. More specifically, you need to help them see that putting their hope in God is the ultimate source for their refuge and their strength and their sustenance and their life and their ability to press on even when God seems far away or even when life is throwing at you all kinds of things. So, not just any hope, a confident expectation in God's face, being near his presence. Now, the reason why I think it's helpful to point out the face thing isn't just because the translators cut it out. It is because You and I know what it's like to be in someone's presence and they feel far away even when they're sitting right next to you. Married couples, if you've been married for more than one week, my guess is you've experienced being in someone's presence and even though you're sitting right next to each other, you use this wording, you feel distant lately. That's what this psalm is talking about. If you've had a friendship or a relationship with someone, and you're in their physical presence. So in this sense, we could say, well, how could you feel far from God? He's everywhere. Even if his temple and throne is in Jerusalem and that's seen as the hot spot, we, we read later on in Psalm 139, where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from your spirit? If I go to the heights, if I go to the depths, you're there, you're there, you're there. God is omnipresent. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about relational intimacy. The way that when you're in someone's presence and you have their face. And what kind of face should you imagine you have? A happy face. A pleased face. A I want to be with you face. Do y'all ever realize that you speak through your body language? That's what the Bible is metaphorically talking about here. God's body language through sometimes circumstances of life, and as we see specifically the oppression of the enemy, is communicating a frowning face. A, it feels cold between God and myself. And so the Bible is going to reorient you to help you see that when you are depressed, Your greatest need and your soul's deepest longing is the smiling, pleased face of God that he does in fact love you, is for you, and not against you. So you need hope. Psalm 42 and 43 are all about hope. But you need hope in God, more specifically the very presence of God himself, close communion, where you could see his face. And so, To close out our big idea, Psalm 42 and 43 tell us that there is hope no matter how far away God may be or feel, he will not abandon his king or his kingdom. And this is the part of my big idea that for many of you, you're going to be like, I have no idea why that's the big idea. And that's because of context. Remember, we're talking about context today reading the bible in its context so that way we don't just take a passage of scripture see the word hope hope in god and then quickly jump to talking about depression only and practical lessons for it how about the fact that psalm 42 and psalm 43 is in the book of psalms how did the book of psalms begin tyler read it for us psalm 1 blessed is the man and that word is happy that's the exact opposite of our psalm so you have book one of the psalms the first psalm that starts the book of psalms and it says how happy is the man when he is meditating on the law of the lord day and night and he is like do you guys know he's like a tree he's like a tree planted by water and that water is not dried up and it is drinking the nutrients of that water, and its leaf does not wither in season or out of season. That is a happy man. Psalm 42. I am in a land where there is no water. Do you think that's intentional? That maybe the first psalm of book one is being contrasted with the first psalm of book two? I do. But I'm not done yet. I'm going to keep arguing my case that in context, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are together, just like Psalm 42 and 43, a single psalm, because the blessed man who's like a tree that meditates on the law day and night is none other than the king, the representative of Israel. And so the book of Psalms is about David. Book 1 and book 2 are really all about King David. And you might be scratching your head or being like, okay, maybe, but I need proof from the Bible, Pastor Phil. Great. I'm glad you were thinking that. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 72. And I will give you definitive, holy-inspired proof that you are supposed to read all of Book 1 and all of Book 2 thinking about the King, the Anointed One, who is on the holy hill of Jerusalem that God has chosen as the representative who meditates on the law day and night, and he will be blessed, and he will prosper. And if you look at Psalm 72, it says it's of Solomon, David's son, but look at the very last verse. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Close book two. I want to make sure that you're reading the Psalms in context. They are not individual songs for you to pick up, read them, and then say, hmm, I like that. Let me quickly apply this to my life. You're to read them within the context of the story of Israel the story of the Bible, and you're to realize that all of book one and all of book two are predominated by David as king. And as I've summarized in the past, we've done 41 sermons from book one, and I have said again and again that book one is about God setting up his king even when that king is being oppressed and rejected by the people and being persecuted by Saul and others. And even when it looks like that king is not really the king, God's faithfulness toward him is not wavering. Here in book two, as we start this journey for many, many more weeks, and you all have been doing some throughout the summer, I want to make sure you get the context. God chose and set up a king in book one, and he is committed to that kingdom in book two, no matter how far away God may feel. No matter how far away or dark the days get, he is committed to David's kingdom. So then let's go back to this little point, the sons of Korah. Do you remember that? Psalm 42 is the first book or first psalm of book two. That's significant. I think it contrasts the first psalm of book one. Water, no water. It's also the first psalm that says sons of Korah. It's the first psalm that says anything other than of David up to this point in all the psalms. Does that matter? Yes, it does. Who are the sons of Korah? Well, read the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 16. You'll know that he was a part of a rebellion to try and get rid of Moses. It's a longer story, but here's the point. God saved miraculously Korah's sons, even though Korah was terribly sinning against God. That's already grace upon grace. When just thinking about their existence that they're alive there's this little phrase at the end of numbers in chapter 26 that it says and the sons of Korah God spared them they did not die presuming they should have died Korah and all of his family furthermore David himself is the one who appointed the sons of Korah to be temple gatekeepers and musicians now it should make more sense You've got music, musically skilled people that their full-time job as Levite sons, Levite meaning priestly family, right? Full-time job is to take care of things that pertain in the temple in Jerusalem. And what you see is a series of Sons of Korah Psalms to start book two, and it begins with, we are so far from the temple. Our full-time job is to be in the temple, taking care of it, and singing songs, and leading people. Read verse 4 again now in light of that. Oh, I remember the days when we used to be in the temple. Oh, how good it was to lead people into worship. That's their job. And again, just because of the relevance of this being my first Sunday back, and this was not the plan that I would be preaching Psalm 42, but sure enough, it's the Lord's plan. It's very much reminiscent of me being gone for three months and being like, oh, I just want to be back preaching the Bible. I haven't done this since May. There's this fond memory of being a leader of God's people into worship, but in this time and place, the sons of Korah, or even the sons of Korah are the choir masters that are being referred to at the beginning of our psalm, and David's the one who wrote this psalm in the first place. That's another argument about who actually wrote Psalm 42 and 43. But here's my point about why this should be a psalm that offers hope. No matter how far away God may feel or be, he will not abandon his king. He will not abandon David. And the sons of Korah want you to know that. In the actual words of Psalm 42 and 43, as they confidently say, Hope in God, hope in God, I will again praise him in the temple of his people. But if you keep reading and you already heard this sermon from, I think, Nate Prater, the sons of Korah center their collection around Psalm 45 and 46. So last place to turn, turn to Psalms 45 and 46. This is the middle section of this collection that Psalm 42 to 49, all Sons of Korah songs, is centered around. And notice the language here. Psalm 45, verse 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and you have hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of offer. Your throne is forever and ever. The sons of Korah begin Psalm 42 with a question of, where is God? When am I going to worship in God's presence? When am I going to see his face? But in the middle of this collection, they say that the throne of God will last forever and ever. Or Psalm 46, verses 4 to 7. Notice this beautiful description or answer to the prayer. Send me your light. Guide me to the truth. I want to go to your holy hill and worship with your people where there is an abundance of water and not a thirsty deer. Verse 4, Psalm 46, verses 4 and following. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. No matter how you could explain it, I think the best way to sum it up is to say that because of the context of where Psalm 42 and 43 are, in light of the context of all the Psalms around it and the entire Bible, you need to realize that it's about the king and God's presence being with the king, even when the psalmist feels and expresses the deep forgetfulness that they have of God's personal face shining down on them. Psalm 41 was the last psalm of book one, and it ended with these words. You have upheld me because of my integrity, and you set me in your presence forever. That's the end of book one. Turn to book two. Where's God's presence? That's what I'm trying to point out from various angles. There is an idea that's being introduced in the very first Psalm. God's presence and communing with him by meditating on his law day and night as the king was instructed to do will be like a lush tree that flourishes. But time and time again, there will be threats to whether or not that king will in fact be on that throne when he faces opposition And if that happens, there's no hope for not just the king, but anybody in his kingdom. Do you think this might apply to you? Or is this just interesting information about how to read the Psalms in context? Well, I'll help spell it out for you. If we talk next week about pastoral practical tips from Psalm 42, how to talk to oneself, if we think about the description and the metaphors and the language and the definitions of spiritual depression next week, but we do all of that and it just centers all about you, I have a feeling that you won't actually be freed from depression. I have the sense that until you understand the context of the whole Bible and situate yourself in the context of God's plan for his king and that he will never abandon him, then you will not be telling yourself empty phrases of there's better days ahead and then in the back of your mind be like, no, there's not. I want you to have the hope that you have really good reason To tell yourself, hope in God, because God did not abandon David. He did not abandon the line of David. He did not abandon his son, Jesus Christ. And he will never abandon any of his kingdom citizens from Psalm 42 onward. Therefore, realize that the undergirding foundation in context is that Psalm 42 and 43, they offer hope no matter how far away God may feel or even be because of God's commitment for his king and his kingdom. So that begs a question for each one of you right now, before we end this sermon and think about next week's. Who's your king? Are you a citizen in his kingdom? And do you realize that by attaching yourself to him, you reap all of the benefits of his kingdom? All of the bounty of his reward and his accomplishments, they get applied to any kingdom citizens. The reason we call ourselves Embassy Church is so for you to know right from the get-go, this church is about a kingdom from heaven, an embassy where we represent not just regular, normal, human, earthly people, but human people who have God's presence in us where we have been transformed from the inside out and we have hope. And even if some of us in this room, as we're going to talk at length next week, might experience actual depression, even when we're a Christian, that happens. Yes, Christians get depressed too. Why do you think this is in the Bible? To instruct believers of God when they're depressed to put their hope in the God who does not abandon his people. You have to know that. Otherwise, all the other tips mean nothing. All the other strategies are going to be empty words that come and go. So put your hope in the king, the king that God did not abandon. Not just King David, but King Jesus, of course. The one, as Grace came up and read for us from John 12, said, I must die. And he talked about the great turmoil that was within him. And many scholars think that that's language of Psalm 42, so that you know that Jesus Christ is the king that felt and experienced a kind of deep, we might call depression, depending on how you might define it, or just sickness in his heart or, or sadness over the fact that he would be wear, bearing the weight and the responsibility of all the sins of the world. And just like our psalm prays, He was vindicated. Psalm 43, 1 was most clearly answered when Jesus' cause was defended and he was resurrected from the dead after he bore all of the sins on the cross and rose again triumphant over sin and Satan and then the final enemy, death. And one day you and I, even when we are buried in our grave, will rise again to new life if we would be united to Jesus Christ himself. So that you can know that even when you die, you will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. And you can praise him. And you will see his face. And you'll be close with him. And you will know him not just generally, but personally. Throughout many years of Christian history, Christians have talked about having a personal relationship with God. And that happens only through Jesus Christ. So friend, I want to just ask each and every one of you, do you know God personally? Do you know him intimately? Do you picture and imagine in your mind someone's face smiling upon you because of their great love towards you? Or do you think that there are reasons why God is cold and distant and far off and that he does not love you? Well, then you need to come back next week and you need to read the Bible and you need to realize that the Bible tells you no hope in God. There is great reason to put our hope in the God of the Bible because of his commitment to his king and his kingdom and all of its citizens. Let's close in prayer now. Our Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name we come again because there is no one else we can come to, you, except the wonderful work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we want to bow before your throne and say Jesus Christ is our king And as citizens, we struggle with depression and with deferred hopes, and we need hope. So I want to pray that Embassy Church would be a a lighthouse from heaven. When it says in our psalm that we need the light and the truth to guide us into your communion and worship, I pray that we would realize that Jesus Christ was sent into the world as our light and guides us in the truth because he is the light and the truth, and the path, and the way. And so I pray for a a Christ-centered hope to permeate this room and the hearts of your people. And I pray that as we consider the topic of depression and its prevailing effects on our society, we would be able to offer much, much hope. So give us that grace, ultimately to the end and the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.